You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, of course, we're going to talk about our wonderful sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. MailChimp is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. Join more than 7 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 500 million emails every single day. Sign up for a free account at MailChimp.com. Need a new domain for your next project? Check out Hover. Each domain comes with free private domain registration, unlimited domain forwarding, and world-class customer support. Grab yourself a domain today and use the promo code JUNEBUG and save 10% off your purchase. Creative Market sells fonts, themes, graphics, photos, and a whole lot more starting at only $2. They give away a selection of free goods every Monday, of course, today is Monday, and they've got great bundle promotions every month. Check them out at creativemarket.com. Now here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. Like I said, I'm gonna do these every week so you get an idea kind of where we stand. So since last week, we are up to eight patrons for a combined total of $32 per month. So just again, wanna thank everyone who has already pledged your support for the show. If you wanna become a patron of Revision Path and get access to some really great perks like special giveaways, early access to future episodes, or a monthly Google Hangout with me and other Revision Path supporters, head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and you can make that happen. Speaking of giveaways, we actually just wrapped one up uh, for June. We gave away a book that came from SitePoint. Uh, So you had to be a patron to be in the giveaway. So again, thanks to all of you that are currently patrons. If you want to get in on the next giveaway, patreon.com forward slash revision path. Pledge levels start at just $1 a month. All right, now let's get on with this week's interview. I talked with renowned design educator Silas Monroe. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. I'm Silas Monroe, and I am a designer, I am a writer, and I'm a design educator. So talk to me a little bit about you being a design educator. I know you've taught at a bunch of different places. Tell me about that. Yeah, I have taught at a lot of different schools in the United States and also done workshops at many others. I currently teach at Vermont College of Fine Arts, and I teach in the MFA program in graphic design. I've been teaching there for the last four years. I'm one of the founding faculty members there, and I just stepped down three weeks ago as the faculty co-chair. So that's an, a graduate-only art school that specializes in a unique format called low residency. So all of the faculty and students at VCFA live and work other places than Montpelier, Vermont, but come together every six months to have these intensives. And then the rest of the education is done through this hybrid digital format. And then I am beginning a new job in August as an assistant professor of art in the graphic design program at Miami University. And that is in Oxford, Ohio. It's about 50 minutes outside of Cincinnati. And that's a, a university setting. And I'll be teaching undergraduates. I'll be helping develop a new minor in graphic design, which I think is really exciting because it's going to be involving students from various disciplines, I hope as broad as, you know, 
maybe more affiliate kind of programs like marketing, the interactive media studies program there, business, but also as far afield as anthropology or biology, other hard sciences, everyone. I think that's, it's an exciting time in design right now because we are really having a wider dialogue and people are paying attention to, to design. And, and sort of before Miami University and before VCFA, I've taught at lots of other schools, NC State, North Carolina State, and Raleigh, Maryland Institute College of Art, MICA in Baltimore. And so I've had a, a lot of different experiences at, at both art schools and universities. And it's just a really exciting time to be teaching design, to be practicing design. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to talk to you. What have been the differences between teaching design at an art school versus teaching at kind of more of a formal liberal arts university kind of setting? The differences for me sort of stem around an art school brings more of a focus on the history of art and history of design when sort of learning contemporary design and tends to focus more on aspects of form and aesthetics, I find. And I found my experience at universities tend to kind of deal with those things. Of course, yes, as designers, we want to make things look good, but tend to have a little bit more rigor when it comes to research, scholarship, this idea of peer review in the process, which is not necessarily what undergraduate students are doing, but it affects the teaching, affects the way and the focus of of things, at least at the schools that I've been at. What I think is also interesting is that those kinds of places are getting closer together. So whether I'm teaching sort of at BCFA or at Miami, or I talk to colleagues at NC State or colleagues at RISD or Yale or any of the other CalArts, Art Center, any of the other kind of, and many, many others, RIT schools that are doing interesting things are both want to deal with aesthetics, but are also looking more research and looking more interdisciplinarity collaboration, participatory design, an embrace of all of the emerging technologies that are, are totally disrupting design practice, but also disrupting design education. What kind of technologies? I mean, I think, of course, ubiquitous computing, the democratization of interactive and web design, the rise in, in user interface design, responsive design, all of that user experience design, experience design itself, service design, all these sort of things that are kind of around post-Web 2.0 and how it's affected our digital lives. Mm -hmm. There's, of course, tons of innovations in hardware prototyping, you know, things like the Arduino, Raspberry Pi, Makey Makey, things where that were kind of maybe more the domain of industrial designers or product designers now are in the hands of graphic designers and non-designers and all of those things are kind of making this like perfect storm for innovation and kind of unusual combinations, wearable computing and wearable devices. You know, the Apple Watch is, of course, maybe the most known, but there's so many other really interesting things. That really beautiful 3D printed dress. I don't know if you've, have you seen that? Yeah, I've seen some 3D printing. Sort of circling, yeah, circling the web. 3D printing, of course, is a huge part of that laser the laser cutter all these things where we're seeing a combination of new technologies but also a love of craft mm-hmm. so I, I like to call it sort of 21st century craft 
Yeah, I think it's interesting now, like you said, how design is really kind of bridging this divide between the digital and the analog in this way where not everything that you're doing is necessarily so ephemeral. It also has these real world digital components and things that you can work with kind of broadening the scope of what design is or what people think of when they think about design. Yeah. And I think that merging of the analog and digital also connects to this entrepreneurial turn in design. Like we're seeing designers create their own businesses, you Mm -hmm. know, all the things the SVA program is doing, but just people in general can now, it's so much easier to make a product now than it was even five years ago that designers are just doing it because we're doers and we're makers as designers. And I, I'm definitely excited about design thinking. And that's something that a lot of people who are working in business are doing. And I think for those people who are kind of uncertain about what entrepreneurial means, I think it's sort of, I think it's synonymous with business. It's just business acumen, or you can sort of think of it as like being an upstart or someone who's like kind of doing things on their own. But it really is also just about like, how does this thing work in the real world? And can I get capital from what I'm doing? And I think that's not just about design thinking, but it's also about design making. Mm -hmm. So from a design educator standpoint, what do designers kind of need to know now in 2015 to really succeed? It depends on really what you want to do. I think one of the things that I think maybe isn't talked about as much is I think designers really need to know themselves. Like that's something that I really try to instill when I'm teaching design, no matter what level that part of what we need to figure out as makers is what am I like? What are the things that I'm good at? What are my interests? And not in a way that's selfish, but a way that is self-focused that allows us to connect like, One of the big buzzwords in design education, and I think just in design in general, has to do with the word empathy. Mm -hmm. And we think about all this sort of participatory design or designing for, you know, experiences or even interaction or user experience. We're all kind of thinking more and more about like, who are we designing for and who are we designing with and we need to work in teams or we need to work with people who are not trained as designers i think as as someone who's learning to become an expert designer you you also do need to know who you are as a person before you can connect and have empathy for others now you started out at the rhode island school of design at RISD. what was that experience like for you being in art school being in art school was pretty amazing it was Definitely very eye-opening for me. I was someone who, in high school, was interested in a lot of different things. And I, I loved art, but it didn't seem to be the thing that I was going to study in college. Like, I thought I was going to be a microbiologist like my mother or maybe go into the liberal arts like my dad, who studied history and ended up being a journalist. He worked for NPR for, like, 33 years and I, I don't know, I guess there was just this, not that art was not important because my parents do love art and they have totally supported my career as an artist, but that it just wasn't practical enough or like it wasn't valuable enough. But once I, I had this, in my senior year, I had this course lineup that was like AP Calculus, AP Physics, like AP English, 
and like just thought it was going to be kind of more liberal arts. But the physics professor that I loved, he stopped teaching physics and then it was replaced by this teacher I did not connect with at all. And then at the same time, a teacher I'd been taking after school art with, Mrs. Monroe, spelled totally differently, (laughs) (laughs) she came back and I took her AP art class and I just, I loved it. It was just the class that made me feel most alive. And so that's getting to RISD was like that super concentrated version of that. And there were just all these people who were like makers and strange and like thinking outside of the box, nonlinear thinkers. And it was just, it was such an exciting time for me. And I think one of the reasons why I ended up choosing graphic design and I was kind of, at RISD, they, they do really force you to sort of like, okay, pick your major after the first year and really focus. And I had a tough time deciding between graphic design. Like I really thought about film animation video. I thought about painting. Like I'm like, what am I? I love images and I love words. And for me, graphic design was this thing that when I was in and doing it, it was like the merging of two halves of my brain. Mrs. Monroe, when I was applying to school, she was like, you look like the Rodin's thinker, but instead of sort of holding your head in your hands, you've got like one lobe in one of your hands and the other lobe of your brain in the other hand. And with graphic design, I feel like those two lobes are fused. Now, you call yourself a design nomad. Um, I think that was mentioned in the bio that you sent me. So you kind of just travel the world writing design wrongs, kind of like <laughs> that kind of thing. I mean, I call myself a design nomad both. There's definitely been a lot of geographic places that I have been. And I continue like with my new teaching setup, I will be in Oxford, you know, most of the year, I will go to Vermont twice a year, once in October, once in April, and I will also be going back to Miami during the breaks and during the summer, because my partner is still going to live there. And I've had clients a lot of different places, like I just finished a, a project that was a total dream project, like I'm so grateful to work on it. It was a catalog for MoMA, And it was for Jacob Lawrence's migration series that was restaged at the MoMA. It had been 20 years since it had been the full set. It's jointly owned by the MoMA and the Phillips Collection. So the catalog was for both institutions. So I worked on that project from Miami, the clients in, in New York. And I think that's also a very common experience for designers now. We have clients that are geographically distributed from where we are. And so that's one of the reasons why I like teaching at BCFA. I think it sort of relates to the model of contemporary practice. And so I'm, I, I love traveling. I do love being in different places. I love giving workshops and, and lecturing and speaking different places. Like that inspires me. But also I think it is a good metaphor for my practice as well. Like I think I love designing a book as much as I love designing a digital interface. I love designing and curating exhibitions about graphic design as much as I like designing a poster. I I like doing the design as much as I like writing. And that idea of being a design nomad for me is also metaphorical in terms of crossing various media. It all kind of came out of my thesis at... CalArts, where I went to graduate school, which was titled Polymode, which was about the idea that graphic designers, or the argument my thesis makes, is that we don't have to have one set visual style, or even one sort of conceptual framework, or even 
be tied to one kind of media, certain kinds of media that we work in, but that we can have immutable set of systems and strategies that can be reconfigured across our practice. And so to me, the design nomad kind of embodies that polymodal way, meaning working in many modes. And I think that is a very common way that people practice now. And then there's also many other, like if you look at history, many other designers like Bruno Munari, this Italian graphic designer and product designer and artist and sculptor and author of children's books, you know, someone like William Morris from England at the turn of the the 19th to 20th century with his Kelmscott Press was making wallpaper and he was designing books and he was writing poetry. He invented socialism. He had his farm that he was looking at. I think, you know, that all those kinds of people are very relevant to the kind of designer in Brooklyn who's got his bees on his roof, green roof and is doing some web design and also maybe identities for an artisanal coffee shop. And, you know, yeah. like there's people whose practices feel very heterogeneous. And I think even yours, you know, is, makes me think of that. You're a designer and you, you're also publishing, you're interviewing people, you're, you're doing this whole mix of things. You're poly mode. I'm poly mode. <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned that because that's actually something that I have sort of personally grappled with for a long time. It's kind of this way of how do I take all of these things that I know how to do and that I'm good at doing, and what does that represent as who I am in terms of a designer? Like you said, I, I'm doing these interviews. I love podcasting. I love doing these interviews. I'm also a web designer. I can also do a little bit of code, but I also write. I teach also. So like I do all of mm-hmm. these yeah. different things. And you know, right now, I think one of the big conversations in the design community is is about being a specialist versus being a generalist mm, mm-hmm. and about should you just really focus on one thing and be good at one thing or should you kind of be this, this jack of all trades in a way? Well, I think it's sort of, uh, there's lots of different models and that's making me think of like IDEO, right? And they're, they talk about this idea of creating T-shaped designers, right? Where you have like, you're broad in a lot of different dimensions, but then you specialist in this one thing. And I think that's all well and good, but like I'm more interested in people-shaped designers rather than (laughs) T-shaped designers. It's something that one of my colleagues at at, um, VCFA, Natalia Ilyin, jokes about, you know, we just like, it just depends on what you want to do. Some people love doing that kind of -of jack-of-all-trades thing where they're doing a lot of different things and that works for them and you know other people really prefer to like focus on one thing and do that I I don't think there's any and that ties back to that kind of one of the things I think is really interesting and important for students to know or any designer any maker or anybody is to know themselves and that self-knowledge which is is something that's really, if you think about it from a, d- a design education or just educational standpoint, that really goes back to, um, in America, to pragmatist John Dewey. He, his educational philosophy, which is very much in the spirit of BCFA, and he was very influential in Black Mountain College and, and many other educators, is the idea that education is about self-actualization. And it's about learning about yourself mm-hmm. and his view of education, which he spells out in a lot of different texts, but his my pedagogical creed especially, is that we help 
the teacher's job and the student's job is like to help them learn about PHP or CSS or typography or image making or whatever is the skill set at hand in the discipline. But it's also about helping that student be the best version of themselves. That's what the self-actualization is. And that's kind of what my mission is as a design educator, as a designer, as a writer. Like I'm really interested in whether I'm working with people or whether I'm working with cultural institutions or whether I'm working with communities. Like I really want through my practice through my publications, through my teaching. Like I want people, institutions, and communities to be the best version of themselves and to affect positive social change. And one of the other people, if anyone's interested in this, a couple people to look at are, other than John Dewey, who's a white dude, who's great and very thoughtful, one of my colleagues at the CFA, Zidi Musangi, gave this amazing talk a couple weeks ago where he was looking at, yes, John Dewey and American pragmatism and its influence on education. But there were two other people, Jane Adams and W.E.B. Du Bois, who were contemporaries of Dewey and, and sort of influenced by him and kind of his students and colleagues and wrote and shaped a lot of things that were very much about this idea. And I think it's super relevant for a lot of the pardon my French shit that is going down right now in contemporary practice of design, contemporary life, culture, and, and things that are just happening in our world right now. How do you balance all of this that you're doing? You're, you're teaching, like you said, you have your own studio as well. You're speaking. What's your key to sort of balancing all of this work that you're doing? I mean, I think I try to make alignments where things have more than one impact I, I'm definitely not an expert in balance. Like I, I actually don't think balance is something that really exists. It's a, all about course correction. Like you have a kind of vision. Like even if you think about like oh, the metaphor of balance. Like if you're standing and you're balancing, like like in yoga, which I do sometimes, you you're using your muscles. Like if you're balancing on one leg, you're not really static, even though it looks like you are. You're kind of constantly readjusting or tai chi which is a practice i do too like you're you have to have a kind of flow and 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 i i just try to keep moving and keep trying to find connections within my work so like the catalog that i did with moma for jacob lawrence was a book design but it it also involved this whole section of poems that were written by contemporary african-american poets in response to jacob lawrence's series, which is about the great migration of African-American people from the South to the North in the early 20th century, mostly in the 30s uh, and, and kind of 40s, and then expanding into the 70s and 80s and sort of tells the story of kind of contemporary urban Black culture moving out of a response to Jim Crow and segregation and discrimination in the South. And that involved my experience as having a minor in poetry and loving language. I'm now going to, like, I've written blog posts on VCFA's Perpetual Beta website about it. So I've written about being a designer of color and, and, and working on this project. So that part of my professional practice has fed my scholarship and, and, has, and has continued to be something that I, that these things influence each other. And I think that's really the only way that I think I could do everything that I do and stay sane. Now, 
before we started recording, you mentioned that you had actually taught one of the people that, that I've interviewed before. You taught Ariana Farkerson when you taught at North Carolina State. So I have a question that kind of relates to that. Stephen Heller wrote this book that's called The Education of a Graphic Designer. And in there, there's an essay by the late Sylvia Harris, where she, mm-hmm. it's called Searching for an African-American Aesthetic in Graphic Design. I think that's what it's called. Yeah. But in there, there's a part where she speaks about how like black art students, for example, like students in, in art school, are falling more into a culture of imitation rather than innovation. Whereas they're not really sort of building on things that might tap into who they are or tap into what their cultural identity is. But it's more so trying to mirror, say, the old European masters or more European types of of art styles or things like that. What do you think about that? As a design educator, do you feel that sometimes students fall into that trap? I mean, I think all students, you know, students of color and others can fall into traps of sort of imitation and, and working on trends and kind of get wrapped up into a certain kind of visual vocabulary. Sometimes that vocabulary comes out of a culture that's created at the, at the school level. You know, mm-hmm. like I think being a student at CalArts, there's definitely a certain postmodern California aesthetic that I've taken on after or being there. Or, you know, Yale has a certain kind of maybe aesthetic that's sort of this tied into the history of Swiss modernism and, of course, the emigres that, that taught there that, that came from the Bauhaus and, and other parts of Europe, Herbert Matter and Bradbury Thompson's American and, and Paul Rand too. But like there are certain we designers have been taught to learn by imitating. Like we have a lot of rote exercises and, and things that come from the history of pedagogy. Sorry, this is like I'm trying to parse this all out because I no go go. I'm being very mindful of this. Is kind of I feel like I'm entering a stickity wicket right now <laughs> because I really respect Sylvia Harris. I did not know her personally, but I I know that text and in the text she's talking about things like African American students could look at things like cubism, right, and you know jazz and and blues, like certain references that. Uh, maybe even primitivism, if certain references that maybe more speak to a kind of black experience or black aesthetic mm-hmm. that are often left out of, say, things like design history and left out of exemplars, both in their colleagues, peers, because there's not that many black students in graphic design programs. There's not that many black faculty in graphic design programs. But there is also a tremendous, I think, tide that's shifting and, and, and changing there. It's still slow at times. Like, I'm just getting kind of emotional because it's, um, I can kind of relate to Ariana because there was like very many other designers of color in the program at NC State, whether at the faculty level or, or student level, whether it was Kermit Bailey and, and me. Mm-hmm. And at VCFA, I have two colleagues of color, you know, ZD who I mentioned already, and Tashika Arsenio, who also teaches in, in New Orleans. Like all the people at VCFA also have other jobs outside of it. Uh-huh. And this last residency a couple of weeks ago, Zidi, Tashika, and I were sitting this restaurant in Montpelier, and the three of us had dinner. It turned out that none of the other faculty were there or didn't come was before the residency had started. And it was just, the three of us were like, oh my God, we're like three tenure track faculty 
in graphic design who have black or brown skin mm -hmm. and we're having dinner together. And I bet you that's not a very, the idea that there could be three it's, designers of color that are design educators having a meal together is it's rare. Yes. I don't really know of, I've never had an experience like that. And so to have someone like, and all three of us have very different experiences. And I feel like this is, maybe this is a good example of what I was trying to not do, which is like flatten the conversation because like I get read as a, a designer of color and I am, and I'm a black designer. My mom is from Uganda she was born in Uganda and she emigrated here in the 60s when she came to study microbiology, as I mentioned. And my dad is from Minnesota. So, like, he's white. I have a biracial African-American experience. Like, and Zidi is from Tanzania, but lived in Kenya and his, you know, father's Kenyan and has this sort of Kenyan experience that he grew up and emigrated like my mom, kind of around the same age in his late teens, early 20s to this country. And so he has a very different experience as a, a designer of color and design educator of color. And, and then Tashika is from New Orleans and grew up African-American, born in the United States and in the South, but also Louisiana, which is a very specific experience, say to, to other parts of the South, like Alabama, let's say, or Georgia. And each of us brings a different kind of notion of what it means to be a black designer, what it means to be a, a educator of color. Mm -hmm. And our research interests are really different. And so I think, yes, Sylvia has a point I think is valid, but that, I think I can't speak for her. She's gone. But I think if she were around now, she'd probably be updating her viewpoints about what designers of color should look at. But we need more examples for them, for us, for all of us. And I love that you're having this podcast and I love that I can get to have conversations with people like Tashika and Zidi and we can try to think through what that means. And one of the things Tashika and I have talked about is like, she's given lectures about where's the black and graphic design. And we are like talking about like, could there be a, just a, a design history course that's only about black design, black graphic design, what would that look like? Wow. And, you know, ZD has done amazing scholarship on sort of the history of conga, which are a form of garment to clothing that is seen in Kenya and Tanzania and Uganda and South Africa as well that have Swahili phrases on them that are also have this very rich visual iconography that communicate things and i would encourage people to look at that so that's like like because i one of the things that i've been thinking about lately and in preparation for this interview and going back to more full-time educational experience is like i don't know shit about african design like i went to kind of google it mm -hmm. just to like <laughs> to rethink about it and it's like the things that come up are these stereotypical like Kente cloth. Ba yeah, Kente cloth, <laughs> bad vector patterns of, right. of that. And then I was like, I can't even do that. Like, I need to, I was like, then I was like, okay, Ugandan graphic design. And then I like stumbled upon, I forget her name. I don't think she's actually of color, but a graduate of the Art Center Media Design Program. They have a, a lab track and a field track. And the last couple of years, my colleague, Sean Donahue, who's a white designer, but amazing, has been taking and other faculty have been taking students to Kampala, Uganda. Okay. And this one woman created these amazing 
prototypes for sort of digital tools for Ugandan youth. They're very interested in this thing called VJing, which is sort of like singing and kind of rapping in Luganda, the native tongue. And like this woman from the Bay Area who's doing this project, she's like, she knows more about Uganda than I do, kind of. It's like, and that's no one's fault but my own. Like, so, well, maybe. And also the sort of systems and, and experiences of design education. So like, I think... It's a very troubling experience that I have, but it's all, I'm very optimistic because like, there's an opportunity for new knowledge to be created around these, things, these issues of these gaps in design education's own education, not just our individual educations. I was about to ask, do you think that kind of design education is open to that? Is design academia open to that diversity? Definitely at VCFA, for sure. My experience interviewing at Miami University was very welcoming and accepting. And I know that at NC State, Kermit Bailey was working on a DVD about Ghanaian CD-ROM. This is back in a while, CD-ROM about Ghanaian stories and and experiences. And I know he's sort of updated and, and written about that a lot. So I think they're open. I just don't know if there's that many people doing the scholarship there. Like, Recently, I was just like getting ready for my own imaging course that I'm going to be teaching in the fall and a studio in an MFA studio in experience design that I'm going to be co-teaching with my colleague, Dennis Cheatham at Miami. And I was just looking, MIT had a sale, MIT Press had a sale on books and I was like buying a bunch of books and I was also like looking there the same or related to the publisher of Yale University. And I was just like Googling like, okay, African design, African, Africa, African-American. And there's way more books, scholarship about African art and design than African-American design and art. Yeah. I think there's openness to it, but there's just not that many people doing the, the scholarship there but there's some really interesting like there's this one book that i haven't read yet but looks amazing and this is more about african but it's called transient workspaces Mm -hmm. by clapperton chuck i'm gonna butcher this chuck and chuck and seta mufanga and it's all about sort of technologies of everyday innovation in zimbabwe and how the sort of history of of the hunter and sort of nomadic people in Zimbabwe created like innovation. He's sort of, or this author is making an argument for that like technology and our ideas of innovation are not necessarily always tied to the West or this Western point of view. So that was one text that looks really interesting. And I think that's an opportunity for like more people to build on and talk about that. There was also another text, a couple texts about the history of African-American design and technology. Let me just grab it real quick. That looks really interesting to me. A Hammer in Their Hands, which is this documentary history of technology in the African-American experience. It's by Carol W. Purcell. And it looks super interesting. And it's like looking at, instead of sort of thinking of African-Americans as this sort of disenfranchised experienced, but rather people who are sort of have redefined technology and are skilled artisans who are self-taught inventors. Like I think of 
Carver and so many others I can't think of right now, but like there's definitely an openness to it. I think it's just, there's sort of a lack of voices maybe. So there's something you mentioned earlier as it relates to kind of this feeling of being uh, left out. Right. Hmm. And several months ago, there was some controversy regarding the winners of ADC young guns, 12 ADC young guns, the art directors club. This is kind of an annual kind of recognition event that they do. Now you're a former ADC young guns winner. Is that right? Correct. What's the benefit of kind of winning a competition like that? The benefit of winning a competition like that means you're visible to other professionals that are sort of doing, that are at the forefront of practice. So people who have more interesting clients, maybe more lucrative clients who are kind of considered the avant-garde or cutting edge of design and advertising. And now also kind of surrounding (laughs) ADC Young Guns, there was a bit of a dust up about all of last year's winners being white. And you pinned a brief response to that on the, on the ADC website. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. And part of what you said that kind of stuck out to me was that, and, and this is similar to what you discussed earlier, is that there are new models in education and new access to like mentorship and tools that's helping to kind of shift the tide. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for keeping me on the optimistic track. I think I was <laughs> in that last little bit. I was getting a little, I think, and that's sort of, this is, I mean, what's nice about this interview is I can kind of expand on this thing is it's like, on one hand, I feel sort of gaps and disenfranchisedness, but then on the other hand, I'm super optimistic about possibility to fill in those gaps. And I think Vermont College of Fine Arts is one of those new models it's a low residency MFA program. So a lot of the students at VCFA are tend to open up avenues for graduate study for people who could not pursue graduate study otherwise. And part of that has to do with, you know, just the format itself. Like it allows people like kind of you were, we were talking before we started recording about your graduate school experience. And it's, it being the low residency format allows students who are working as designers to or educators to pursue their masters while they continue to have their job or while they continue to look after their families or all of the above. And so it, it, it's like it reflects sort of a segment of the population that who couldn't say just afford to stop what they're doing and relocate and go to graduate school. Mm-hmm. And that affordance has to do with fiscal realities. VCFA is more affordable than full residency programs in design, but it also has to do with affordances of sort of time and, and space. Like, and so that has opened up a, a really diverse population of students. And that has been really diverse in a lot of different dimensions of race and ethnicity, age. We have a, a much greater age range mm-hmm. of students, which I think is really beautiful. Geographic location. We have international faculty and we have students all over the country and from Canada and very diverse in terms of spiritual and religious ideology. And the, the kind of way that we teach is there's a kind of a multiplicity of viewpoints that are allowed and engaged with in terms of what people are reading and studying because the model is really based around independence study, you know, self-study with a plan that's 
directed and, and helped shape by faculty, but really initiated by the student, which grad school is really about that in general. But that's one way. I think the kinds of effects that ubiquitous technology has on, on possible mentoring and, and tools, like the fact that you and I can have this conversation and be so far away from each other, but be part of a discourse and a dialogue is part of those new models and tools. There's just this whole new, I think it's a Cameron Mole that talks about this, like a new way of finding your mentors. Like it's no longer about sort of like applying for a job. Like if you're a young designer say you're a young designer of color and you're looking for a mentor that looks like you or has had an experience that's similar to you or is just doing something you love, like the way that you get the job is you don't necessarily apply for a call for jobs. Like you make something, you put it on the web and you send it to your idol. You're like, I made this, you know, and mm-hmm. I'd love for you to mentor me or I'd love to get your advice. And, you know, you have people like Jessica Hitch who are, you know, an amazing typographer and designer, but she's like, um, I'm offering office hours, you know, where students who want a portfolio review or whatever pay me a certain hourly rate. It's not my hourly rate for design, but you can get input from one of the best contemporary letters out there, you know? So I think there's a lot of new avenues and ways and like for designers to get the kind of learning they want and to connect with people that they relate to and, and can understand not only their experience in terms of technically or, or skill set, but also their life experience. And that's the other part of my thesis, Polymo, that I didn't really talk about was that it really is about like, what is the relationship between the identity of the designer and the kind of design work that they do? Mm. And it kind of became this, this thing that was really sort of self-focused for me to figure out like, what is my practice? I have all these different parts. I've worked all these different places. And I'm a design nomad, like I'm a polymo, but I'm also, as one of my colleagues at VCFA said, Nikki, she's like, Nikki Yuen, she's like, you're not just a poly, but you're also uni. Like you, you can be this heterogeneous mix of things, but you can also be united. There's something you just said that kind of blew my mind there a little bit about where you said, if you're kind of looking for mentors, you know, make a project and then sort of send it to your idol and, and see what they think about it or kind of try to to get their feedback from it. One thing that I see, and that's, I mean, it's something that I've even experienced myself, and it, it goes back a little bit to what you're saying about poly mode, uni mode, you know, specialist, generalist, designer, is you may be a designer that has all of these different skills that you can, you know, utilize or bring to a particular, you know, company or something. But then you might look at a job posting or a job listing of qualifications, and there are these very kind of stiff, rigid things that they want. So it it can for a designer can kind of feel maybe I think a little bit limiting, especially because our job titles can be so varied. They've changed a lot. I'd say even within the past three or four years where there's experienced designers and interaction designers and product designers. And, and, you know, it's not just, Oh, I'm a graphic designer. Oh, I'm a web designer. Mm -hmm. You're doing something that encompasses a lot more than just, you know, kind of sitting in front of a computer and playing in Photoshop or Illustrator or, or, or kind <laughs> yeah. of doing some code. But then also, you know, on that, that tone of mentorship, like you said, finding someone that looks like you that's able to kind of give you some advice or, or give you some, some help or something like that, which, you know, for designers of color, if I'm just, you know, being honest, if we look and see what's reflected back to us in our design media, we don't really see that, you know, and I'm not just speaking about black designers, although clearly that's kind of a big thing, but 
you know, Asian designers, Hispanic designers, you're really not seeing a lot of that. And when I say design media, I'm specifically talking about what we see here out of the U.S. when we look at, you know, mm-hmm. conferences and meetups and podcasts and things of that nature. You're really not seeing very many black designers. I think it's improving. Definitely it's it's improved, but it's not, not that I think it will, it's ever going to be equal in terms of equal number white, equal number black. I don't think it's ever going to be something like that, but yeah. you really just don't see designers of color that well represented in general. So if you're a designer that's coming up and you want to be in this industry, but you don't see anyone that kind of looks like you, it's like, oh, does this mean that this is not for me or... Or should I just kind of push past that and kind of keep trying anyway? Yeah, I mean, I think that's maybe kind of what I was speaking to, if we're being honest, in the ADC post was like, yes, there are people that I look up to and who are doing amazing things. Like I think of Bobby Martin Jr., original champions of design, or Arm Duplices, who was at the New York Times Magazine, who's now at Apple in the Bay Area. But like, we don't really see that many black designers or designers of color at the I called it the upper echelons of our practice. And like, so if all the people who are judging, say, ADC Young Guns are white guys, then it's hard to imagine, I think, for the young designer to imagine sort of being connecting with even the people who are sort of kind of running the panel, Uh running the competition. I'm not saying it's like there's a sort of race bias in these judging things. I think there's just not as many designers of color there to sort of who have led the path. And I think that there was some, I remember hearing on NPR something and it had to do with women in STEM fields Uh that part of the reason why there's a a lack of, of women studying STEM and STEAM topics and subjects is that there's just the greatest indicator for a woman kind of going into a STEM or STEAM field is having someone in their community that is already in that field doing what they're doing and being able to, to just see that as a possibility model. That's what Laverne Cox, she talks about rather than idol, she likes the term possibility models. And I think that's what we really need more of in the design community. And, and that's whether it's academia or, or professional practice. And that also, I think, particularly in the UX product design user experience, experience design segment of design practice that is really bubbling and burgeoning and exploding right now, particularly from the entrepreneurial standpoint, like it's going to be hard for you as a black designer or entrepreneur coming up to get funding or capital mentorship if you're not going to have a mentor or, or someone who's already taken a, a company through a funding A, B series and, and you know, or IPO even, mm-hmm. you know, like where the sort of black Mark Zuckerbergs. Yeah. That's something I know when the diversity in tech conversation is brought up, that's always, that's always brought up. It's like, where are the black Mark Zuckerbergs? But really it's, and granted, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is an extreme case in terms of just education and privilege. And there are other, you know, kind of factors there. But I mean, it's just speaking to the fact of who else is maybe not necessarily on his level, but who else is just, Mm -hmm. Kind of on the way there, yeah, like in that airspace, because when you talk about those upper echelons, I think, you know, however those may look, whether you are like a Bobby C. Martin Jr. or a Ram, whether it's something like that, it can look a little bit unattainable 
you know, if you're just like an entrepreneur right. or if you're a rank and file designer at an agency or at a company, it's like, how do I get to where he is or where she is? How do I get there from where I am right now? There's not that that clear path, so to speak. It can look like it's it's in a totally different atmosphere. Yeah. I mean, I think that's sort of the trick of kind of any sort of worship and idolization that happens. Like I have been reading this book about the Bauhaus masters, kind of just been boning up on design history. And like Walter Gropius, like he had money problems. <laughs> like he had relationship drama, like, you know, Kandinsky and, and Clay and Albers, like all these people who are like kind of icons, pillars of design, they're not black designers, but like they struggled and lived just like anybody else. And like, I think when I maybe even look at the way that my practice or life looks like right now, like, I'm really lucky. Like I had a vision for kind of what I wanted my design and my life to look like the design of both. And it's really starting to manifest like a lot of things I had goals for myself. I want to give back. Like I want to keep going. I also want to say as someone who now is maybe beginning to be and hoping to be a kind of thought leader in design education, design pedagogy, and design practice, is that like there's still so much I don't know. There's still so much I struggle with. There's still so much I haven't figured out, and I probably won't ever figure out. <laughs> and I think that's maybe also part of what I would say to young designer of color like myself right now. Like, there's you're going to be constantly figuring stuff out. And imagine like Ram or Eddie Opera or like any of those people, any people who I respect and look up to is doing the same thing. So juggling work and life and is what I'm doing really creative enough? And is this project going to be good enough? And what can I do to continue to be content and also to innovate? How can I do all of those things? And what are you, I guess, the most excited about at the moment? I know you've got you know, your new teaching appointment that's coming up. Is there anything else? You know what? There's one thing that I am excited about, and it's I'm almost kind of like afraid to put it out there because it's still sort of nascent. But one of the classes that I'm going to be teaching this fall is a class that's called Image. And it's a class that's sort of looking at visual meaning and communication and sort of how do designers make images and, and signs and symbols. And it's for sophomores. It's a, their first class in the major. There are 20 majors, 20 students will be in this class. And as I've begun preparing for the class, I've noticed there's a tons and tons of books and sort of how-to guides on typography for graphic designers, for user experience designers, for our whole design field. There's tons of scholarship out there, but there's not really good textbooks or books or publications about image making from a designer's point of view. Like the things tend to be super technical or just like how to like draw vector shapes or like how to use Photoshop, but there's not really a theoretical kind of look at that. And so part of what I am going to be doing out of preparing for this class is creating some kind of resource that I hope could eventually be a textbook or some kind of publication that's substantial about sort of like the taxonomy of image making and and how are we as designers from sort of photographs and the history of kind of 
photography and, and lithography and daguerreotypes and all that to sort of digital photography, video, vector, graphic, abstraction, pictographs, information, diagrams, mapping, like what is the taxonomy of image making and, and how to learn how to someone who makes images that are designed. So I'm really excited about that. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? It's, it's 2020. What's Silas Monroe up to? What's he doing? I see myself publishing that book it would be great. I really want to do more things where I am writing and designing together. I, that was something that is I love doing. I like I love that synthesis that comes with publishing. I would love to pursue that history of graphic design, of, of black graphic design, perhaps with Tashika, perhaps with others. I think that could be an amazing, amazing book and, and something that's really needed. I would love to be teaching more expanded ideas of design history. I would love to continue to one of the things I haven't really talked about this interview so far is just like my work in sort of social activism and connecting and designing with communities, like things that I've done with the Center for Urban Pedagogy in New York or with Housing Works or with uh, Winwood Business Improvement District here in Miami. And I want to continue to be doing projects that are shifting design pedagogy, the the, the sort of design world, but I also want to make a difference in the larger world too, like in society and, and make positive social change. I, I'm still, it's still a little fuzzy for me what that looks like. And I, I think that there is still a kind of colonial problem with certain aspects of design for social change or design for social innovation, whatever you want to call it has about like what are our motives as designers why do we want to change society why do we want i think i really like the term social justice that is sort of comes out of more schools of thoughts of activism or advocacy and this idea that i really do believe i am a utopianist and i believe that all people are equal and that we should try to find ways to redesign aspects of our culture that exclude or limit any population and any part of our society. And I think that could be seen as something that's kind of radical or left-wing from certain points of view, but I think it's really just about correcting and modernizing, contemporizing certain systems and frameworks, like everything from the sort of history of human trafficking, which is our contemporary language for slavery, and, and its historical impacts on life, on gender inequality and, and bias against LGBTQ communities, of which I'm a member of. I think things that are happening in the current dialogue around trans rights are really interesting, not just for people who are trans, but also I think it's opening up this really interesting dialogue about where where everyone doesn't have to be so gendered in what they're doing like we don't have to follow prescriptive roles and i know these are all really big things and i want to be of good to society as a whole and i think one other part of that is also our planet and as someone who lives in miami right now who is or seeing firsthand like just like the effects of our shifts in climate and 
flooding that happened. I live two blocks from Biscayne Bay and like there's this new map that you can look at. Like if the sea level rises 3%, what would be underwater in Miami area? And it's like huge portions. Miami beach would be lots of it would be underwater. Even parts of where I live would also become kind of a, a barrier Island like Miami beaches right now, which is totally mind boggling and scary. And I want to make work and make a difference to affect those kinds of things. Well, Silas, just to kind of wrap up this conversation, where can our audience find out more about you online? They can find out more about me at silasmonroe.com. They can also find out more about me at bcfa.edu in the graphic design program. And they can also find out more about me at Miami University. Uh, That's uh, miamioh.edu. Right. Sounds good. Silas Monroe, thank you again so much for taking the time out to speak to me today. I know we've kind of been trying to get this conversation going for quite a while, but I'm really glad that we were able to talk because there's just so much that you touched on that is, there's a lot in here. There's a lot to unpack. There's a lot to parse, yeah. which is good. I mean, that's, that's good. That's what we want thank, people to Thank know. you for, yeah, thank you for having me. I mean, I just, I almost want to like, I could talk, I would love to talk more to you and just like, continue to have a conversation because I I feel like what you're doing is so important and so valuable and gives me a lot of hope and gets me really excited and gets me riled up too, which I think is a good thing and is very productive. So I'd love to hear, like, has anyone interviewed you? <laughs> I've had a few podcast interviews. I would love to do more podcast interviews. I really would. I've been on On the Grid. I've been on Show Me Your Mic, but that was mostly talking about just like my gear. I haven't really Mm -hmm. done a podcast or or had an interview that was really, I mean, since I've done this, that was really kind of more about like me personally. It's been more about like Mm -hmm. the projects and the work that I've done, but not about like me and kind of my journey. Well, if you, I'd love to, I love interviewing other designers. I had this little project back in grad school that I never really did anything with but i called it banter Uh and it was i've done it twice once in grad school once since where i just interview designers and just like have this kind of free-flowing conversation obviously debbie millman's design matters and like what mitch and namdav are doing with uh thought process are like kind of like that but if you wanted me to interview you like is something you wanted i think you should post it on on your podcast or something i just i feel like because you've you've talked to so many people so many designers of color and they're all fascinating and like all the conversations are really interesting like i'm sure you have a really both like very like zoomed out view but also very concrete examples of like what's happening right now and what are things that we should be talking about and what are things we should be doing well as a community yeah i'm up for it just let me know i'm totally up for that okay all right thanks so much thank you And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Silas Monroe and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Silas and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks as always to our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. When it comes down to email marketing, MailChimp makes it extremely simple. They have really great reporting and autoresponder features, and you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. 
Hover, of course, is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Get yourself a new domain or transfer your current domains to Hover and save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code JUNEBUG at checkout. And lastly, there's Creative Market, a marketplace that sells beautiful, ready-to-use design content from thousands of independent creators from around the globe. Head over to creativemarket.com and pick up those six free goods that are available for free every Monday. And if you see something else you like, use our discount code REVISIONPATH and save 20% off your purchase. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro audio by Yellow Speaker. The outro audio, This Is My Take For You, is courtesy of Jimmy Square. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave a rating and a review. It really helps us get new listeners. I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit our new home over at Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge levels start at just $1 and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, giveaways, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening. Have a happy and safe Independence Day and we'll see you next time.